The following message was given by Rayshawn Graves on Sunday, March 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As many of you know, last week uh, was the Oscars, if you're into that sort of thing. I'm just kidding. We, we watched it. Um, if you remember last year, the 2017 Oscars, uh, Mahershala Ali, he won the award for Best Supporting Actor in his role uh, for the film Moonlight. I didn't see the film, just like 90% of all the other Oscar films. Um, <laughs> we won't go there. But if you did and you took a restroom break or if you did something else while watching it, uh, there's a chance you might have missed him on screen. And that's because he was only in the film for a full 15 minutes which doesn't seem like a really long enough time to, be, to win or to even be nominated for an award, right? Well, the same things happened with several other actors and actresses before him. Anne Hathaway, she was nominated for the same award a few years earlier for appearing in Les Miserables for only 15 minutes. Viola Davis, she was uh, nominated for appearing in the movie Doubt for only eight minutes. And 83-year-old Ruby Dee, she received an Oscar nomination for only five minutes in American Gangster. Although they were not in leading roles, these nominations, they, they really speak more to impact than to longevity. And so the same thing is, could be said for Ezra, well, sort of. Seven chapters into this book that bears his name, here he is. He's finally making an appearance in this book, in the story of God's restoration of his people. And although it's not a lengthy appearance because he'll only be in the book for the, ne- for the next four chapters, Ezra does make an impactful appearance as he transitions God's people from the rebuilding of the temple to the rebuilding of their corporate relationship with God. See, Ezra, he comes to Jerusalem with the purpose of reforming what the temples already reestablished, the worship of God among God's people and the word of God among God's people. But although the text tells us in verse one that it was after this that when these things took place, it's been a period of nearly 60 years since the events of chapter six. And so it's somewhat of a different setting now with an entire, entirely different wave of, of, of new exiles, but the purposes of God, they remain the same for his people. And this is why Ezra shows up in Jerusalem. And so today we're just going to take a brief look at chapter 7 and we'll just touch on, on two main things here. And uh, although uh, this chapter, it centers primarily around the life and events of this man, Ezra, we want to see that this chapter is ultimately about God. It's about how God providentially moves this man named Ezra, and it's how Ezra fits into the story of God's restoring his people in Jerusalem. And so first we'll we'll see in the first 10 verses a little bit about this man, Ezra. Uh, If you ever heard that God received the question, what do you do? It seems like the new, who are you, right? It's almost the first question that you're asked everywhere you go, even sometimes before your name. Sometimes it's a complicated question, right? It's never expected, it's never said, but you're expected to give this sort of shorthand answer or this shorthand way of describing yourself, but but not really. Don't go into it too long. But you're also expected to give this sort of description of your line of work briefly as well. So sometimes it really just feels like a a quick way to be sized up and categorized, maybe a quick way to, to make some small talk. And I think for someone like Ezra, if you were to ask him, who are you and what do you do? I think he'd give this answer that, you know, have you got a minute or it's just, it's complicated. Look at verse one. It begins by placing us back in Babylon 60 years after the uh, the events of chapters one through six. The king of Persia is Artaxerxes. He's also the same king who is King Ahasuerus in the book of uh, Esther. 
Uh, And the first thing that we learn about Ezra is that uh, he's a priest, which meant that he was a kind of preacher and teacher of God's people. Uh, And when I thought about this and sort of the next few verses where you see that these names are not here without a reason. Uh, In my own quest, I recently began to to research the the origins of my own family. And for many people like myself, due to the horrors of, of slavery in this nation's past, Many families, they were split up or undocumented and uh, consequently leaving the family histories broken and and lost. So in my search, I went to Ancestry.com, right, the place where everybody goes for this type of stuff. I began tracing back my relatives uh, up to 200 years ago, and I eventually ran into something that was just completely mind-blowing for me. Some of my ancestors uh, in Caswell County of North Carolina, they built a church almost 150 years ago right after they were freed from slavery. And next to this church, many of them were buried. So one day last year in October, I got the chance to visit this church called Graves Chapel. I I pulled up in the parking lot. I touched the original cornerstone of the building that their hands laid. I walked on the land that they walked on, that they worked on. And then I walked over to the cemetery where many of them were buried, and I saw their names. I saw my name. I saw graves there. I saw my grandfather's father and and his father and his father before him. Listen, I didn't gain anything material from this. It didn't give me access to anything, but but being there certainly meant something. It carried some weight. Those names meant something. They, They mean something to me now, even in the sense of identity. And so these names here in Ezra 7, 1 through 5, they're here because they too, they mean something. It's not just a, a random genealogy. They mean something not just to Ezra, but they mean something to this passage, and they mean something for God's people in Babylon, in captivity. See, these names here, they indicate that the priesthood was Ezra's calling. It was in his bloodline. Although that they were a people who had lost the tangible reality of temple worship in their captivity, they hadn't lost their identity as a people concerning their tribes and who God established them to be in his covenant, covenantal relationship with them. See, God had established that the sons of Aaron, the first high priest, Moses' brother, they were to always be priests, which is why these names, as, as spaced out as they are over time, they ultimately lead back to Aaron. And if you look there and through the presence of Aaron's name, it means that Ezra would have been well-respected among God's people. His genealogy meant that he was well-qualified to lead God's people in the reestablishment of God's ways and God's worship. The two things, the two things that that remain central among these displaced people. So last week, we we spent a good deal of time on the sovereignty and the providence of God and his purposes to to restore his people in Jerusalem again. But here in chapter 7, it's no coincidence. It's not by chance that a man with this bloodline is exactly where he is in this narrative. You look at verse 6. It also mentions that Ezra is a scribe, a term that we we probably often think of as being a, a spiritual or religious office, but during this time, a scribe was a political office. And so as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, Ezra, he functioned in Babylon uh, more like the secretary of Jewish affairs. He was the person who was responsible for for overseeing the moral code of Israel and, and representing the Jewish people to the Persian Empire. This was Ezra's vocation. It was his job. It's one that involved constant writing and communicating and being fluent in the laws of God's people. And so as a member of this Babylonian government, Ezra, he served as a representative of the king of Persia. He served as an employee of the state. 
Now, if you just step back for a minute and just remember, all of this is happening in Babylon, not Jerusalem, a foreign place, in captivity. This is long before Ezra even leads the exiles to Jerusalem. This is happening in Babylon. It's a, it's a pagan government under the reign of a pagan king who wants to establish order and favor in the surrounding provinces, including Jerusalem. And so as, a, as both a priest and a scribe in this empire, Ezra, he's exactly where he's needed concerning the, the purposes of God for his people. See, Ezra here, he speaks the language of Babylon. He's immersed in the culture of Babylon, and yet his calling and his vocation in the midst of this Babylonian culture, they work together to advance God's mission. And this is nothing new for God's people, right? Just look at Joseph in Genesis or, or Daniel. It's no coincidence that this godly man finds himself in the courts of the highest officials of this land. He's been providentially and strategically placed there. And again, although vocationally in Babylon, Ezra isn't sinfully conformed to or even swallowed by the Babylonian culture. No, he's consistent in his faithfulness to God and comfortable in his relationship with God even while making and maintaining Babylonian relationships. See, there's no being reclusive here. There's no withdrawing from the environment. There's also no individual personal campaign to, to transform the entire environment to Ezra's agenda. See, this is where Ezra is by God's placement. God always strategically and stealthily, he places his people in positions like this with this sort of dual identity in order to ultimately achieve his purposes in his people and in the world. See, tomorrow morning, many of you are gonna get up and you're gonna make your way to environments that are not intentionally Christian. Your workplaces, your, your schools, your public spaces. You'll spend a significant amount of time in a culture that isn't godly by any means. Listen, look at Ezra's example. Don't run from it. Don't hide in it. Embrace it. You've been placed there strategically, providentially, stealthily by God to do and enjoy your work as unto the Lord but you're also there for the mission and the purposes of God. See, Ezra, he shows us that it is possible to be faithful to your God and functional in an environment that's contrary to him. Although your vocation is whatever it is, whether you love it or hate it, whether it satisfies you or frustrates you, whether it's transient or stable, your calling as God's people is primary and present. See, if we trust in God as his people, then firstly and foremostly, we are called his. That is our calling. Like Ezra, the book of 1 Peter 2, it, it, the book of 1 Peter, it tells us that as God's people, we're elect exiles. We're, we're scattered throughout the world. And he goes on in 1 Peter 2 and telling us that we're a kind of priest, or a royal priesthood, a chosen, a chosen people by God, set apart for his purposes. And our only credentials are that we too are connected to another bloodline. See, you are God's people. We're God's people. Not to be taken out of the world, but kept in it as Jesus prays in John chapter 17. Not to make priestly animal sacrifices, but to live sacrificially. And as we'll see with Ezra, as we see with his example, God's word, it isn't simply an additional feature or accessory to our lives. No, rather, it fuels and informs everything that we do towards God and towards one another and towards the world that we interact with. 
One more quick thing about this, the writer of this chapter, he starts off acknowledging Ezra's calling, not because it particularly applies to where he is presently in Babylon, but to to where he's going, to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the restoration of God's people, which is why it says this Ezra went up from Babylonia. See, his vocation as a scribe in Babylon will ultimately serve God's purpose, uh, will ultimately serve God's purpose and Ezra's purpose as a priest of God's people in Jerusalem. And the same is true for us. You're a doctor, you're a a dentist, you're a a mailroom worker, a a banker, a teacher, a parent even, not primarily because it's what you wanna do or have to do right now, it's because you too are moving towards something greater. God has made it such so that he can be glorified in his purposes of conforming you to Jesus, to making you more like him. God is working through your vocation for his eternal purposes, for his mission. So now we've seen a little bit about who this man Ezra is, and we'll now see a little bit about his mission. In the second half of verse six, we start to see something of of how God works through Ezra's, Ezra's vocation for the purpose of Ezra's calling and God's mission. Verse six, it says that the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord was on him. Now, on the surface, it just looks like that because God favored Ezra, then Ezra could ask the king for whatever he wanted, and it would be granted. And that's true in some sense. But the the real question then is, what did Ezra ask for? See, if you think about Ezra's position here, frequent and positive conversations with the, the most powerful leader of the free world, they could lead to anything from the temptation to ask for some type of uh, individual power and promotion but it could also lead to to backing down from bold requests because uh, you're trying to maintain some sort of favorable status. So what does Ezra do here? This favorable status that he had from God, what is he going to do with it? Was it just a blank check to, to ask for whatever Ezra wants? Well, again, we'll only know when we find out what were the kind of things that Ezra asked for. And the text doesn't tell us. But if Ezra's the kind of man whose character is consistent in both his vocation as well as his calling, then the nature of his job description, it'll tell us exactly what he's asking for. See, his requests were aligned with God's word and God's will. And if you scroll down a little bit and just take one look at Artaxerxes' letter, look how specific it is concerning God's law, concerning the things that God desires, God's order. The whole mission is to to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of God in verse 14. And in verse 18, it's to do whatever seems good to you, Ezra, with the rest of the silver and gold according to the will of your God. Also in verse 23, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done. See, from everything, including priests and Levites, offerings, temple vessels, how does the king know that all this needs to be done? Is Artaxerxes just sitting around spending his time researching the moral code of God's people? No, Ezra is though, and Ezra is now asking for God's will to be done according to God's word. And now God moves his hand in goodness and faithfulness, giving Ezra favor with this king in order to accomplish his will. Again, we know that this is exactly what Ezra asked for because look at what happens in verses seven through nine. 
And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the, in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. Ezra and God's people, they begin making this 900-mile trip from Babylon to Jerusalem as informed by God's word. Around the same date as the Passover and the exodus of God's people from Egypt. If you look back in the book of Exodus, it'll tell us that on the first day of the first month, they were informed by God's word. Ezra arrived safely in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month due to the good hand of God on him. What's happening here? Ezra's request line up with what he sees in God's word, in God's law. But also we're seeing the priority and the centrality of God's word in the life of Ezra. We're seeing that God's word is central in all aspects, in all areas of, of Ezra's life. But you say, yeah, that's, that's his job. He's a lawyer. He, he studies God's law. And then he's a, he's a priest. He's a preacher of God's law. Of course, this is a part of his life. True, yeah, Ezra does spend his day studying and copying, copying, interpreting the Mosaic law for Israel, but its effect on him, the effect of God's word on Ezra extends far beyond his office hours. God's word for Ezra was far more than just some static and lofty moral code that Ezra aspired to. No, God's word is, 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 was much more in the life of Ezra, and it's meant to be much more than that for us. Look at verse 10. It grounds everything that's happened thus far. Everything that we've seen thus far in these 10 verses, including the ways that God has positively moved in Ezra's favor, it grounds him in this statement. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now look here, the, the focus here isn't on activity as much as it is, as it is alignment. See, Ezra does everything according to God's word, aligned with who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And this isn't something that starts with his behavior or his actions first. It begins with the disposition of his heart towards God. There's a preparation, a, a personal resolve, a readiness, a devotion. There's a movement within Ezra's affections towards God and his word. See, when God's word is central in our lives, we approach it, as Ezra does here, uh, with questions, with, with looking to know what does God want? What does God desire? How do our lives fit within his story and his plans and his purposes? See, studying here, it isn't just an intellectual exercise in order to acquire more information. It's a setting of our hearts to know more of God to grow in love and devotion to God, to know clearly and specifically what he desires for his people. Furthermore, as God's people study God's word, we study God's word in order to be studied by God's word, to be searched by it, to be exposed, to be revealed and shown our errors and inconsistencies and insufficiency. It's to contrast us to this good and holy God and then be transformed in our, in our thinking and are applying God's word to our lives. Furthermore, studying God's word, it moves us towards obedience to God's will. As we're exposed through God's word, seeing our contrast to who this holy and good God is, we, we find ourselves confessing, 
confessing our, our insufficiency, confessing our sinfulness, repenting when we found ourselves unaligned and out of step with God and his purposes. And then through God's word, we're aligned to God's will. We put into practice what God has called us to, how God sees us, how we identify with him. We put this in practice, not just because it's the right thing to do or because it's what God wants, but our joy is attached to this as well. And so, from studying God's word and doing God's word, out of this, out of God's word being central in our heart and our lives, we, we, we proclaim God's word to one another. We teach God's word. We encourage and exhort and equip one another, teaching, helping one another to understand and apply God's word. See, this is what it means in 1 Peter 2 when it tells us that we're this, this priesthood of believers. We're people who are, are marked by the centrality of God's word in our lives that leads us to encouraging one another, to pointing each other to the gospel, to this good and gracious God and what he's done through Jesus. See, this is why you can't just write off verse 10 as just being from ministry leaders or, or pastors or, or preachers. Certainly, sure, this is what people like myself and the pastors of this church and everywhere else, this is what we do and it's what our aim is, even as a calling and vocationally, studying God's word, doing it, teaching it. But look what Ezra does here in verse 10, it's a model for all of God's people. See, whether it's in settings like this as we hear God's word proclaimed together or when we're studying God's word in, in smaller groups or individually reading or studying for our, our own souls, studying, doing, and teaching God's word, it's vital. It's necessary for the health of our souls and for the flourishing of the community around us. This isn't just for pastors and, and preachers. This is a model for all of God's people. And look, you, you see this here. I see it as I'm studying, studying, doing, and teaching God's word, and it's, it's a good model. It's, it's great. It's easy to put this forth as a model for how we should approach the Bible. But look, if, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I get this process out of order all the time. Overemphasizing one aspect of this process to the neglect or the detriment of others. Studying the Bible, it gets more focused than, than actually doing it or teaching it. Obeying or doing God's word often gets attempted in my, in my own life without a heart that's actually devoted. And then there's the reality of hypocrisy. Teaching something that has absolutely no presence or impact in our own lives. Look, where does this kind of disconnect exist in your own life? See, what Ezra shows us is that God's word God's word is the primary method through which reform and restoration come to God's people. Studying, doing, teaching. It starts with God's word being primary in our own individual lives. See, Ezra's personal uh, determination to, to study, do, and teach God's word, it eventually leads to what we see in the book of Nehemiah chapter eight. We did a sermon series on that not too long ago, but in that chapter, just a few years later, Ezra will lead uh, Israel in the reading and in the interpretation of God's word. As they're all standing together, Ezra walks up onto this platform and he, he reads God's word aloud to the people so that they can hear it. Many of these exiles had never heard God's word. They were hearing it for the first time. 
And what did it do? It led them to a corporate confession of sin. It said that they were weeping when they were broken, when they heard God's word read aloud because they recognized the how short they fell of it. They confessed their sins and then it brought them to a, a renewed commitment and obedience to God and his laws. This is the effect that God's word has on our lives. Does God's word, does it have a primary, a central place in your life? Does it inform every aspect of who you are, where God has called you to be and what he's called you to do? Is it more than just a moral code for you to live by? A box to check? A way to stay consistent maybe with your your family line? Does God's word, does it lead us to confessing our sin and our insufficiency? Does it lead us to obeying and enjoying God? And does it lead us to encouraging and serving our neighbors? As the book of Hebrews says, exhorting one another. God's word is to be central in the lives of God's people. So let's move on. Uh, Verses 11 through 26, we see Artaxerxes' letter. Uh, In verses 11 through 26, they record King Artaxerxes' letter that he gives to Ezra before his departure to Jerusalem. And uh, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time going into detail, but uh, it carries the same tone as verse 6, extreme generosity. See, Artaxerxes, he's going to give Ezra all that he asks. And when you look at this letter, it contains all these words like anyone, all, whatever, several places throughout it. So what's behind this generosity? What's behind Artaxerxes acting this way towards Ezra? Well, sure, Artaxerxes, he likes Ezra, but what's the Persian kingdom going to get out of this? This is politics. He's going to get loyalty. He's going to get power. Maybe even some spiritual favor from another deity. Look, make offerings to your God for us so that God's wrath won't come on us. See, Artaxerxes writes in the way that he does, not because he's become a follower of Yahweh, but because he's he's trying to maintain peace and order in his empire. And if he's got people in Jerusalem like Ezra enforcing peaceful and orderly moral codes like the law of Moses, then it means that the Persian empire is going to continue to thrive. And so, yeah, that's that's what the mission is in the eyes of the Persian empire. It's a political mission. And sure, I'm sure that's okay in the eyes of Ezra and and the exiles because they're ultimately aware through God's word that this political mission is enveloped in in a much greater mission, God's mission, the spiritual reformation and restoration of God's people which is why in verses 27 through 28, it's the first time that we hear directly from Ezra throughout this entire book. Ezra writes this sort of in his journal. He acknowledges this when he says that, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Artaxerxes, in this letter, you'll notice that he refers to himself as the king of kings. And this king of kings, Artaxerxes, he sends Ezra to Jerusalem for political purposes. But what Ezra's saying here in verses 27 and 28 is that there's a greater king that orchestrates Artaxerxes' motives and for his eternal purposes. See, God's sovereignty puts the the beautification of the temple into the heart of this earthly king in order to accomplish his will for his people. And furthermore, from these words of Ezra in these verses, we can take this 
Don't leave today thinking that, listen, just go and be like Ezra. Just go be a person like Ezra and everything is going to work out successfully for you. This is a good story. Everything goes really well in this passage. Don't lead today thinking that if I'm just more like Ezra, everything will go fine. People will like me. Things will always happen for me. Don't approach your Bible that way. Don't leave with a misunderstanding that if you diligently study, do, and teach God's word with your whole heart, then you'll have a life of ease and free from any difficulty. See, that's not the point of this passage. Ezra experiences the favor that he does not because of anything within himself, but not because of how how winsome or, or morally together he is. It's not even because of how well he knows his Bible. Ezra experiences what he does because of God. God sets his steadfast and covenantal love upon Ezra. God is with Ezra because God loves Ezra, and God loves Ezra because God loves Ezra. And this is what Ezra takes confidence in as the reason for his success. Because of the covenantal, faithful, and steadfast love of God for his people, because of his commitment to them, you and I, we can take courage. We can be confident. We can experience joy and assurance in our lives. We can obey freely and joyfully because we know that God's hand is for us, with us, and working for his glory and our joy at all times. This is what Ezra's confidence is rooted in, the steadfast love of God and his commitment to his people. Look at verse 28. There's the hand of God again. The third time we've seen it thus far in this passage. You saw it in verse 6, you saw it in verse 10 at the beginning of this chapter, and now you see it in verse 28 at the end of this chapter. Notice it's this providential sovereignty sandwich. Sandwiching these ordinary events between spiritual realities. See, God's providential and purposeful hand is, is working on behalf of his people. Shelby talked about a truth smoothie. Now you have a sovereignty sandwich. I know some of y'all were thinking, I just, you know, that's on the spot. That's not in my notes. <laughs> Listen, God's sovereignty is, is bookending and weaving itself all throughout human events. In this passage, in your life, his hand is present. Even when you don't see it, even when life doesn't feel good, even through suffering. In success, at all times, God's hand of sovereignty and providence working for his glory and your joy is moving through your life. Sovereignty will sandwich the events of your ordinary and everyday life. How is it, though? How is it, though, that Ezra could know this and then take courage in this? How is it that Ezra finds this out? How is it that he could be so confident in this God This is the Old Testament. There are no miracles or signs evident. There's no dew on the fleece. There's no visions. There's no prophets in this passage. How could he be so confident in a place like Babylon, in captivity? No land, no temple. He hasn't seen it yet. How can Ezra be so confident and unflinching in the face of the world's top political powers? He opens his Bible. He reads it in God's law. He sets his heart to trust in and obey this God who's revealed himself in his word. 
See, he saw God's purposes through Joseph in Genesis. He saw God's power displayed in Exodus. And in his response to who God has revealed himself to be in his word, Ezra aligns himself with God's will. And Ezra proclaims God's word and teaches it to God's people, giving them confidence. And Ezra confidently rests in what he's seen and read about what God does. He's seen it in his word and he's seen it in his life. Listen, this is our confidence as well. This is our confidence as well. Each week as we gather together to hear God's word and every time that you open your Bible, we see the same thing that Ezra does. We see a holy and good God who's to be praised and adored. We see that this good and holy God works powerfully and strategically in both ordinary and extraordinary circumstances to accomplish his will. Nothing stops him. He works to accomplish his will both in the lives of his people and even in the world. He moves kings. He destroys and crushes empires. He acts justly and good. When we open this Bible, we see God's covenant love for unworthy and sinful people like us. We see God pursuing his people even after the first sin all the way through the end of the ages. God pursues his people. We see how God extends his love, his steadfast love, to save his people from their enemies, from themselves, and ultimately from his wrath. Time and time again, time and time again, every day, on every page, we hear of God's plan to redeem a people for himself, and then one day redeem all creation. We see this each and every time that we open our Bibles. And for us, we actually see a little bit more than Ezra does, right? We see this displayed supremely in the life of another qualified priest of God's people. One not appointed through Aaron, but appointed by God, as the book of Hebrews says. Jesus. See, in his life, Jesus lived perfectly before God, studying, doing, and teaching God's ways without sin but he goes further than Ezra ever could. See, Ezra, he could obey God's law and teach it to others, but Jesus actually fulfills the law in the place of sinful people like you and I. See, his perfect life is lived in our place. His perfect life is counted for ours instead of the sinful and disobedient lives that we've lived. When we didn't want nothing to do with God's word, when we rejected God's word and chose to live by our own word, by our own broken standards, Jesus actually personifies God's word and he does everything that pleases God. See, as where is, where is God's providential hand led Ezra to Jerusalem for the reformation of God's people, God's sovereign and providential hand led Jesus to Jerusalem as well, to the cross for the salvation of God's people. See, as a priest, Ezra could read about and make continual sacrifices. He could teach them that they needed to come before God to the altar and atone for their sins, sacrifice after sacrifice, continual sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. But Jesus, Jesus would make a sacrifice of his life and atone for sin once and for all. And by the end of this book, I'm sure if we asked Ezra, you'll find out. If, if you could ask Ezra, Ezra, if you had the opportunity, would you just make all of these people priests? I'm sure he'd answer with an emphatic yes. But Jesus, 
through what he has accomplished for us, living a perfect life in our place and then dying for the life that we chose to live instead for our sins. He actually makes his people priests. See, through him we have access to God. God himself will write his laws on our hearts to study, to do, to teach. He removes the burden of the command so that we can obey him with joy, so that we can have a grace-driven obedience. And God puts his spirit in us. Again, as Ezekiel 36 says, causing us to walk in his ways. All this comes to us through the, the death and resurrection of God's love that is extended to us in Jesus. Through him, we know that God is providentially for us. Through him, we see that we have God's steadfast love with us at all times. And through him, we have his word, his promises, his grace. We have the clearest picture of who this glorious God is and and what our future holds. We have the forgiveness of sins through his word. Redemption, grace, access to God. We hear and see this in his word. God's people, let's, let's be a people who are marked by centrality to God's word. Going to it with a heart that is open to, to hearing God speak and asking by the power of his spirit to apply his word to our lives for his glory, for his mission and his purposes, and for our joy. Listen, we're going to transition to the portion of this service that we call communion. Um, And during this time, we're just going to take a quick moment to reflect. We're going to reflect on God's word, to think about God's promises, to think about who God has revealed himself to be. Maybe in this time you do sort of this contrast of yourself and God, and, and in seeing that he is holy and that he's good, go to him in confession. Confess the ways that you've fallen short. Confess the ways that you've trusted in your word more than you've trusted in God's. And turn. Set your heart. Set your heart to know and to love God. To see what he's done for you, what he's already accomplished through the person and work of Jesus. And if your trust is in God, if if you can identify with him as his people, then you can come forward and receive communion joyfully. Know that God has accomplished what you never could. He has fulfilled the law in your place. Be reminded of his body that was broken on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin. Be reminded of his shed blood that was for the forgiveness and the cleansing of your sin. But be reminded that he too is a high priest for you. He empathizes with your weaknesses and he makes intercession. He goes to God on your behalf. Be assured of that as you come forward to communion today as God's people. But today, if you feel like maybe you're not sure where you stand with this God that we've seen in his word, you're not sure if you could identify with him, I encourage you to remain at your seat during this time. And and don't just sit there quietly and watch everybody else, but actually go to God in prayer. Pick up one of these Bibles that we have at the tray table and just look at it. Read it. Maybe, maybe if you don't understand what's in it, tag somebody beside you and just ask them, what am I looking at? I guarantee you God himself will speak. He will show you what he's accomplished through Jesus for your sake and forgiving your sin and giving you life. But if that's you, remain at your seat during this time and, and just watch as God's people come forward saying, we do not have it in, our, uh, in and of ourselves. 
to receive grace. God must give us this. We'll take a moment to to take some time to reflect, and then we'll come back and receive communion. You've been listening to a message by Rayshawn Graves given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.